Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. You only have a matter of seconds to hook your reader into your story. If your beginning lags, if there's not enough tension, if you're giving away too much too soon or not enough, your reader is going to move to another book or just turn on Netflix. So how do you create a beginning that hooks readers instantly and keeps them wanting more? In today's episode of Writer Unleashed, we're going to break down three types of story beginnings that pull readers in and keep them wanting more. Stay tuned. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach, and each week we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. The screenwriter and director Elliot Kazan once said that he had seven seconds to hook his audience. Now, he found this out through focus groups. And the interesting thing about this is that the focus groups showed that if the beginning failed to captivate, his audience experienced the entire film as a bit of a dud regardless of how brilliant or stellar its middle and end. Now, publishers reject books based on five to eight pages on average. And in many cases, they reject stories based on the first few sentences. Now, our readers are even less forgiving. More than ever, you're competing for your reader's attention, which is an ever shorter supply. Your opening has to stop them in their tracks. Otherwise, they're out. They're onto Instagram or Netflix. So your beginning has to draw them in immediately. And here's the thing. That first impression is immediate and permanent. The truth is, we make more decisions about your story based on your opening lines than perhaps any other part. And the first and most important question we ask is this. Do I want to keep reading? A captivating beginning doesn't happen by chance. It's deliberately orchestrated by you, the author. It's up to you to create expectations, questions, anticipation. Your beginning is not for doling out information or explaining the story to the reader. Your beginning's job is to arouse questions and stoke your reader's curiosity. 
So here are three story opening techniques that will arouse your reader's curiosity and stoke the desire to know more. Number one, plunge us into an already unstable situation. The best beginnings don't start at the beginning. They allow us to meet characters in the midst of some kind of trouble or some kind of danger, whether it's physical or emotional danger. So let's say the crux of your story takes place at a yoga retreat in Cancun, Mexico. And let's say the story is about um, tensions and conflict between a teenage girl and her single mother. So the retreat is where the conflict escalates. It's where the confrontation between mother and daughter reaches critical mass. It's where things are resolved for better or for worse. Resist the temptation to roam around your first few pages in backstory. What your teenager packed in her suitcase, or details about the flight out of JFK, what she thought about during the plane ride, and so on. Now, a little caveat, it's fine to use those details and include them, but only if those details illuminate the central conflict and reveal the characters. Every detail has to hint at or use imagery to suggest the conflict and reveal characters. For example, maybe during the plane ride, mom puts on a lavender-scented eye mask and checks out and goes to sleep. And maybe the teenage narrator notices that as the plane takes off, as it gets further and further from the earth, the cityscape below resembles to her, in her mind, the motherboard of a computer. So the details in that opening are relevant. You can begin your story with dialogue, description, an image, summary, a question, a memory, whatever. But it's best to begin, and you've heard this before, in medias res. The playwright Edward Albee once said, the beginning of a piece of fiction or memoir is like the opening of a curtain on a scene that was already in progress before the curtain parted. Consider these openings. This one is from Amy Hempel's story, Going. There is a typo on the hospital menu this morning. They mean, I think, that the pot roast tonight will be served with buttered noodles. But what it says here on my breakfast tray is that the pot roast will be severed with buttered noodles. This is not a word you want to see after flipping your car twice at 60 per and then landing side up in a ditch. And here's Toni Morrison's first sentence of Paradise. They shoot the white girl first. And here's one from Jeffrey Eugenides, Middlesex, first sentence. I was born twice, first as a baby girl on a remarkably smogless Detroit day of January 1960, and then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near Petoskey, Michigan in August of 1974. So each of these stories open at a point where life as the character knows it is about to give way. 
It's in the middle of a of a shift in life, in their life, in the way that they know the world to be. So there's been an epic shift. As Clark Blaze points out, when you begin at the point where everything your character knows about being in the world is about to give way, the rest of the story will attempt to draw out the inferences of that earlier upheaval. So your beginning is essential to your story. So number one, plunge us into an already unstable situation. Number two, withhold essential information. Yes, essential. Withhold essential information. A common pitfall is to give away too much too soon, to spoon feed the reader too much information before we have a chance to know or care about the characters or have even had the opportunity to develop an appetite for the situation they're in. A well-crafted beginning invites us to intuit what will follow. It's seductive. Part of what keeps us turning your pages is to see if our expectations bear out or are thwarted in some unexpected shape. Enticing beginnings postpone information. And here's the opening of Robert Cohen's short story, The Boys at Night. The baby arrived in summer. That was how we referred to her, the baby. No name, no gender, just the thing that she was, as if infancy was not a passing condition, but a defining one. In her case, it was. But then we were all in need of some defining that summer. I was 14, though I acted younger. Polly was 11, but seemed much older. And my parents, those large, irritable people who sat across from us at dinner, were hovering warily around 40 and all the tedious complications that seemed to involve. Now, this retrospective narrator has contemplated what's happened and having experienced the events to their end has decided to dispense information about the events slowly in a particular order. So it's very intentional. And this is the thing that I want you to understand about these beginnings. They are intentional beginnings. They are they are crafted with intention. Now, this beginning holds knowledge and understanding in suspension. It skirts around the edges of what's going on, just as the characters do throughout much of the story. So what can we infer from this opening? And what questions form in our mind as we're reading this? Well, first off, we can infer that something serious is wrong with the baby, right? We don't know what that something is yet, but we trust that if we keep reading, we'll find out. Now, a side note, the narrator postpones revealing precisely what's wrong with the baby until page 14 of the story. We can also infer that the baby's arrival has complicated some pre-existing family dysfunction. The narrator's referral to his parents as those large, irritable people who sat across from us at dinner suggests um, a certain estrangement and hostility that already existed before the curtains of the story opened. 
we intuit from that first paragraph that the baby is going to further complicate this trouble and that this something wrong will culminate in a defining dramatic moment. We anticipate that moment and so we keep reading to arrive at it. So the questions that lure us on are, what's wrong with the baby and what happened? So there's a lot happening in, there's a lot packed into that first opening paragraph. So number one, plunge us into an already unstable situation. Number two, withhold essential information. And number three, hint at the conflict. In the opening of his story, Pretty Mouth, Green My Eyes, J.D. Salinger plants the seeds for the conflicts and upheaval to come. And I love this opening because he creates immediate curiosity. So listen to this. When the phone rang, the gray-haired man asked the girl with quite some little deference if she would rather for any reason he didn't answer it. The girl heard him as if from a distance and turned her face toward him, one eye on the side of the light, close tight, her open eye very, however, disingenuously large and so blue as to appear almost violet. The gray-haired man asked her to hurry up, and she raised up on her right forearm just quickly enough so that the movement didn't quite look perfunctory. She cleared her hair back from her forehead with her left and said, God, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? So rather than ask what happened, we ask, what's going on here? What can we infer so far? And what questions hold us in suspense here? For one thing, we can assume the gray-haired man and the girl are lovers. I mean, I picture them in bed here when the phone rings. And we can also infer that their affair is taboo. So how do we infer this? Well, by the urgency in the question of whether or not to answer the phone, and then there's their close physical proximity. She turned her face toward him, one eye on the side of the light, closed tight, her open eye very large and so blue as to appear almost violet. Now, we can also infer that the gray-haired man is much older than the girl because until page three of the story, Salinger chooses to refer to them only as the gray-haired man and the girl, and this suggests an illicit nature of its own. But who's on the other end of the ringing phone? Is it the girl's husband? Her mother? Is it his wife? Will they even answer the phone? The promise of reading further is that the missing information will be parceled out in due time and that our inferences will either be confirmed or delightfully overturned. We can also expect that there's going to be a confrontation at some point between the caller and the man. So that curiosity and anticipatory rush keeps us glued to the page. It keeps us turning the page. So number one, plunge us in an already unstable situation. Number two, withhold essential information. Don't give too much away too soon. Delay. Number three, hint at the conflict to come. Now, to drive all this home, here's what I want you to do next. Go back to something you're working on, a beginning that you think you haven't nailed yet. 
Maybe you've started too soon or too late and you've diffused the story's tension and suspense. Locate that moment in your story where life as your character knows it is about to give way or where things are already off balance, already in motion. Open the curtains and begin there. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'll be back next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. A shout out to all new listeners. If you haven't subscribed yet, come on board. I come to you jam-packed with writing tips and techniques once a week. Make sure you've subscribed if you haven't done so yet. And for more writing resources, visit me at nancypinuccio.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.